Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. I'm John Walsh and the trustee the foundation and i'm joined again by our collections manager connor heaney hello connor hi john and um today's a very special episode indeed because this is the first of our three anniversary podcasts for 2018 and it's three massive films three of ray's most beloved and most famous pictures and today we're going to be talking about the seventh voyage of simbad yes 60th anniversary so so simbad could be getting his bus pass um depending on where you are and what the bus pass rules are. But uh, yeah, access all areas for Sinbad as he as he enters his dotage. Um, amazing to think, really, because um, it's such a, a youthful film. Um, but the fact that we're talking about it 60 years later, and, and we've got lots to talk about, how the film was made, lots of interesting updates about the foundation, and of course we will hear from Ray Harryhausen himself. Uh, but Connor, if you want to kick the show off, what, what, what have we got planned first? Well, I'll start with a quick... Plot synopsis for The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Sinbad and his men land on the island of Colossa, where they rescue the sorcerer Sakura from a huge cyclops. The magician is ungrateful for the rescue, as he has left behind an all-powerful magic lamp which commands a genie. Following their arrival in Baghdad, Sakura creates a snake woman who dances for the caliph, but later to force Sinbad to return to Colossa for the lamp, he reduces the Princess Parisa to only inches by means of magic. Returning to the island, this time with a giant crossbow, Sinbad with his men, Sakura and the tiny princess, seek out the giant rock egg for an ingredient to return the princess to normal size. On the way, they encounter a cyclops who attempts to roast Sinbad's men on a spit, but Sinbad manages to blind him so that he plunges over a cliff. In Sakura's castle, which is defended by a dragon, Sinbad is forced to do battle and destroy a sword-wielding skeleton brought to life by the sorcerer. Fleeing with the princess, who has now been restored to her full height, and the lamp, Sinbad has a final confrontation with Sakura, who tries to use the dragon to kill Sinbad. On the beach, the dragon is slain by Sinbad's giant crossbow, and as it falls to the ground, it kills the evil magician. The story, when you hear it like that, sounds quite complex, but of course it was fairly simple narrative compared to kind of complex sort of parallel narratives you might expect in the Marvel Universe and so on. But um, but not a straightforward film to make. It was quite a, an effort, quite a complex film. The, the monsters that you named there and the sequences um, makes it all sound so easy, but it wasn't, was it, Connor? No, and in fact the gestation period for this film was... Uh many, many years, and it's very interesting to look back at Ray's earliest sketches and uh, story ideas for this film. It was actually way back at the start of the 1950s that Ray began to 
come up with some some ideas for creatures that had never been seen in a stop motion film before. If you think about all of um of the previous stop motion films by Willis O'Brien, it's usually dinosaurs or gorillas on some kind of rampage, um, which had been portrayed by animation, and these are obviously the films that Ray had grown up with, but he'd always had the feeling that more could be done with this medium, and that his his imagination could come up with something that had never been seen before on the big screen. And so, really, the origins of the seventh voyage of Simbard are, are from a single sketch of a skeleton fighting with Simbad on a, a spiral staircase. The sketch is simply called Simbad the Sailor, uh, drawn in 1953, and alongside this, a very simple plot outline was put together by Ray, and he would take this to production studios and say, this is my idea, this is what I'd like to see on the big screen. And it took many years for it, for this to occur, but it just shows you this gem of an idea, and it's an iconic drawing by Ray Harryhausen, seven or eight years before the film was actually released. Indeed. And in fact, let, let's hear it in Ray's own words. He talks about this first sketch and, uh, and how no one wanted to know. It's hard to believe. Have a listen. The first sketch I made was the skeleton on the spiral staircase. And then I made uh, six or seven other drawings. I did a 20-page outline of how the story could develop. And I took it around Hollywood and nobody was interested. Howard Hughes had just made uh, The Son of Sinbad. It flopped at the box office. So most of the producers that I showed it to, my drawings, they said, oh, costume pictures are dead. No, it cannot be so. I brought the drawings out and Charles Schneer got very excited. But I had visions in mind of doing it lavishly like the Thief of Baghdad that Alexander Corda made. So I reevaluated it and uh, uh, redesigned it so that we could make it for an inexpensive sum. So there you go. Without Charles Schneer, it wouldn't have happened. You know, Ray went to lots of places and either people didn't want it or they didn't understand because there wasn't another film he could point at and say it's going to be like that. Um, interesting, Connor, isn't it? That the, uh, the, the process of, of getting these films made, as you say, it was eight years. It's, it's, it's a lengthy process that really isn't discussed when the film's released. It just seems as if films suddenly appear. No, that's right. And there were so, there were so many obstacles. And if you think about it, Ray's previous picture, they'd all, they'd all followed a kind of a, a theme um, in a, along similar lines to King Kong, where it's some kind of creature or some sort of um, creation on the rampage in contemporary America or in, in modern society, at least. And what Ray was trying to do was expand the boundaries of what was possible with stop motion. And what I find very interesting is something that uh, exists in our archive today. It's a sketch for the seventh voyage of Sinbad, a very simple sketch, uh, an outline of, of the dragon on one side, and on the other side are sketches for his unfilmed vision of War of the Worlds. So it just kind of goes to show how many different ideas were going through Ray's head at this time in his life, um, all, all these creations that he, that he would pluck out and use as examples to studios for ideas for future movies. So sadly, War of the Worlds was never made, but at the same time he was thinking of the Arabian Nights tales and how he could bring dragons and rocks and all these mythological creatures to the big screen too. So it was a, a fertile imagination, and it is incredible, given the amount of obstacles that were placed in front of him, that he was able to bring this to the big screen and for the first time in colour. Yes, indeed. So when we think now of colour films, we think that the past is black and white, more recent films are colour. 
Interestingly, at the point at which Ray made this film, 1958, the colour film stocks available to filmmakers were not very sophisticated, were not very detailed. There wasn't many choices in terms of speed of stock. So if we think about black and white photography and photojournalism, higher speed film stock means that you can take photographs or film in much lower light levels at a much higher quality. Now, colour film didn't catch up with that until almost the 70s. So when Ray was producing the miniature rear projections, he would then, um, which he'd shoot on black and white film up to this point, and place models in front of them. There'd be a slight loss of generation between the model and the rear projection because it's like uh, copying a photograph again or doing two photocopies of the same photocopies. Things slip down a generation. In a digital age, it's quite hard to kind of give a comparison. Um, but it meant that the rear projections would be of lesser quality than the foreground action, and thus giving away, if you like, the trick of how the interaction is achieved or the dynamation is achieved. So Ray was quite nervous. It was Charles Schneer who always pushed for um, new technologies, whether it was filming in Panavision um, or in colour, as it was in this case. And of course, it increased the costs because laboratory costs were much more expensive for colour film. Um, the stock was more expensive. Certain cameras that they were using as well um, were more relevant to using colour stocks and the lenses, choice of lenses. So it all meant there was less money to spend on the all important animations. But I think, Connor, you'd agree, Sinbad, um, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, it, it felt like the natural film to be in full colour from Ray Harryhausen. If this film was in black and white, and we, of course we've seen test footage of it in black and white, it really, it would, um, it would not be the same sumptuous epic. No, I think it's, it definitely, it couldn't have been in black and white, and I think Ray knew this, and uh, I don't think there was any doubt that Ray could animate an incredible film in colour, but as you, as you say, the technology hadn't caught up yet, really. Um, I think a telling example is a quote from Ray regarding his working practices at the time. For previous films, he could finish up at the end of an evening and return to his animation the next day. Uh, with the new colour stock, he had to complete sequences in their entirety because if he left and came back in the morning, overnight the film stock would deteriorate and the colours would look different in the morning because of the uh, fluctuating temperatures in the studio. And that shows you how fragile and how cutting edge the uh, materials that Ray was using. Um, it was very difficult for him to work with this for the first time and the fact that the, the film looks so good is a, an incredible testament to all of his uh, imaginative uses of the facilities that were available to him. But of course, the film itself, the, the story of the film is incredible and the creatures uh, just jump off the screen in colour. And I think the, the moment very early on in the film where the Cyclops first appears is such a big bang moment for special effects films. Not only are you seeing stop motion animation on the big screen for the first time, but this incredible creature from Ray's imagination was practically leaping off the screen and roaring at you within three or four minutes of the film beginning. Absolutely. And, and you know, don't take our word for it. This is what Dennis Muren from Industrial Light and Magic, who's won many, many Oscars, half a dozen or more Oscars. This is what he had to say about the sequence. See the spectacular battle between the one-eyed Cyclops and the fire-breathing dragon. 
My favorite hairy awesome creature is always going to be the Cyclops in, in Seventh Voyage because that was the one that, you know, suddenly it's in color and it comes out on the beach and it's huge and it's got this strange sort of motion to it you can't figure out and it's it's angry and it's uh, it's going to get poor Sinbad. And, I'll, you know, you never forget that. He must destroy a legion of hell-spawned monsters on the death-shrouded island of Colossa. So testament indeed, Connor. If Dennis Muren is saying that he needs very much the, um, you know, the pinnacle of special effects or modern special effects from the Star Wars Jurassic Park Terminator era, um, that's quite an endorsement. Yes, and Dennis Muren, and it's, it's a story that we've heard so many times from other directors, uh, Peter Jackson, John Landis, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Phil Tippett, so many others, just describe that that feeling of seeing the Cyclops appear on the big screen. Um, and you could just put yourself in in the shoes of somebody going to see this film in 1958, having never seen anything like it before, and being completely blown away. Uh, it's something I always like to think about. We, we've been lucky enough to, to uh, attend many screenings of The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad during our talks and presentations, and I always like to put myself in the shoes of somebody back in 1958 watching it for the first time, and just how incredible it must have seemed. Uh, of course, it's still incredible to this day, and what I find incredibly heartening is is at these screenings, there's always uh, a row of girls and boys aged between 7 and 12 years old. Uh, when we do our Q&As afterwards, they're always the first with their hands up to ask questions about Ray's work and to ask about how the animation was achieved. So it's a film that still holds holds its weight today, 60 years on. No, absolutely. And, and interestingly... Lots of the comments from people like Dennis and, and others are, are quite well documented. For you guys listening, and lots of you who listen are are, are millennials and are, are younger than millennials. And myself and Connor weren't around in 1958. Um, so for us, it was at different points we would see the film. For me, television and VHS, of course. Um, RCA Columbia was the label that you would buy your Harryhausen VHSs on. And of course, I had a VHS of Seven Voyages Sinbad later on the DVD, and it's had two Blu-ray releases. We'll get to that in a, in, a, in a moment. But Connor, you're you're um, a, a good few years younger than me. And where would you have first seen it? Was it when you first came to us at the foundation? Had you seen it before? And it, would, it, would it have been on television or video? As I've said before, my my mum is a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen, so I think it's one of those bank holiday classics. We still get it every every now and again, uh, Easter bank holidays or, or May Day or, or, or near Christmas. Um, race films are played quite often on terrestrial television in the UK and uh, it's that classic Monday morning bank holiday feeling of watching Sinbad on the TV and I think that's probably when I first saw it. Uh, the film, I think, because of the because of the technical or look of it, it has a very warm and timeless feeling. So it never felt like an old film to me. Um, it, it's got a kind of a an ethereal, mysterious, um, mythological feeling, which uh, which which tends not to age. And I think this is the reason why younger fans enjoy it so much. I think this is why children, when children watch it, they don't think, "Oh, this this film was made sixty years uh, or, or fifty years before I was born." Um, it's it's got its um, a spirit which appeals to people of all ages. Um, but of course, if we had been around in 1958. In the UK, it would have been a very different viewing experience because the the censors at the time thought that many of the scenes that Ray had included were, were too terrifying for film-going audiences in the UK. And so the 
famous skeleton sequence was cut, as well as the sequence where the Cyclops roasts Sinbad's sailors on a spit. So, actually, it wasn't until the 1970s that people were in the UK were able to watch the authentic, the full, uncut Sinbad experience. In fact, we have Ray Harryhausen discussing that, that very topic. Here he, here he is. See the flashing death of the living skeleton. If you had James Bond fighting a skeleton, uh, you'd be comical. But it, having a legendary character like Sinbad personifies adventure. When the first uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was released in England, they cut out the whole skeleton sequence. Good Lord, what you see on the screen today is more horrifying than any skeleton on the screen. So there you go, you know, an eye to the censors at the time, and there was some impact on Ray's later works. The censors were involved, of course, with Jason and with with Clash of the Titans. Um, In our last podcast, of course, we talked extensively about the work of the brilliant, wonderful, epic Bernard Herrmann. And interesting, isn't it, that on the first film that Ray decides to go full Technicolor and go large or go home, as they say, you have Bernard Herrmann doing your music. I mean, there is no film on this planet that hasn't been enhanced by having Bernard Herrmann's music on it. And it really is a step up, isn't it, Connor? From from dialing in library music, which was excellent and professional, but not written specifically for the other films, to, to, to come, you know, to the plate with Bernard Herrmann in, in, in your corner. That's quite something, isn't it? I think that's right. And I think if you do listen to our ongoing series of um, music podcasts where we're tracing the evolution of, of Ray Harryhausen's film scores right the way through from Mighty Joe Young, you'll notice that that huge step up in 1958, it, it fits perfectly with the transition to colour. Uh, the, the soundtrack by Bernard Herrmann is is a perfect accompaniment to that. And uh, you know, we spoke about this in depth in our last episode, but Bernard Herrmann loved fantasy films and this was a perfect kind of project for him. Uh, we know that Ray and Charles Sneer were able to show him extracts from the film, but these were only in black and white, so they were concerned that he wouldn't be getting the full impact of the film. He wouldn't realise what a special picture that they were making. Uh, luckily, I think he could sense that this was going to be this was going to be a special movie, and uh, his soundtrack fits perfectly. The, the creatures that we've spoken about so far, the Cyclops, uh, and then the snake woman, the rock and the skeleton, they all have their own themes and it fits the action perfectly and that it helps, I think, helps to keep these sequences in your head because you picture the music while you're remembering the classic animation. Absolutely, and, and the music is preserved in stereo, which is marvellous because not all of Bernard Herrmann's work is. He went on to make um, four films in total with the Harryhausen Schneer collaboration and, of course, the film itself has been scanned Um by Sony Pictures quite recently into 4K. So if you've bought the recent Indicator Powerhouse box set, you will be watching the 4K scan of um, the Seven Voyages Sinbad. So the, the fact that the original materials are there f- from both the film, the soundtrack, and in the Foundation's archive, Connor, what, what as a collections manager, what can you tell us? What's the, uh, the inventory of, of surviving creatures? Well, I was looking, I was looking through this today and... There are over 300 objects relating to the seventh voyage of Sinbad within the collection. So although the although the models may not have survived as well over the years given the age of the film, we have hundreds of scripts, sketches, storyboards, key drawings and related material uh, which, which tie into the film. Now, 
the uh, the film itself features some some iconic creatures, and very sadly, Ray was forced to cannibalize most of them for following pictures that he created. However, we do have the original skeleton, uh, the original skeleton from the seventh voyage of Sinbad, which again later made an appearance in Jason and the Argonauts, but we've been able to identify which of the skeletons was this original. Now, over the years, Ray would say that he, he just couldn't remember which was which. He, he crafted them all in this in very similar method, and they were all so well put together, uh, the armatures and the liquid latex mixed with cotton wool means that they survive very well, and as such, they, they look incredibly similar. Last year... Our conservator, Alan Friswell, was forensically looking over these models for any signs of deterioration or any preventative restoration which he could undertake. And he realised that one of the skeletons he was looking at was definitely the original 1958 skeleton. Uh, And that model is currently on display at Valance House in Dagenham. Um, It's very appropriate that we've been able to identify this. And actually, it's Ray's longest surviving and best surviving model, um, it's completely intact, we still have its weapons, and uh, it looks like it could have been made last week. So that that's the skeleton, and that is an incredible condition. Unfortunately, the rest of the models from the film have not survived as well. Uh, we have the heads of the dragon, and the adult rock and baby rock creatures, which are all on one platform together, the resin heads. So you can, you can tell which creatures they're from. Sadly, the bodies are, are no longer with us. And... I think most impressively we have the armature for the Cyclops and despite the fact that it has no no latex, it's lost its skin, it's just this armature skeleton which was created by Ray's father Fred. What an imposing and impressive looking creature and we were actually able to make a very special modification to the creature last year because thankfully McKinnon and Saunders were able to recreate a part of the model which had long been lost. Absolutely. No, they, they created the leg. So um, I think, I'm not sure if it's left or right leg, but McKinnon and Saunders engineered one so that uh, the Cyclops is now um, biped again. Um, I was always curious about this, and I, I never got to ask Ray, but I know that he said he cannibalised the creatures for later use, but the, the armature for the Cyclops wasn't used. So I think he may have skinned the Cyclops and... Uh, and, and, then, and he needn't have done. So that's, that's a bit, that's a bit um, upsetting. Actually, uh, if you look closely at Calabos from Clash of the Titans, uh, he has one cloven foot, and that was the reason the leg was removed. The original leg from 1958 was removed and used in Calabos for this one cloven hoof. Of course, uh, Calabos has one human leg and one cloven leg, and uh, Ray used the armature for that particular model. So that's why that's why the armature was taken apart. With McKinnon and Saunders, the very closely and very forensically recreated an, an exact replica of the original leg. So we've reattached that now. I think it ha- helps to provide a more balanced look for the model. Aesthetically, it looks far better. Obviously, it prevents the model from, from toppling over because it's, it's far sturdier now. Uh, we're not trying to pretend that it's the original piece. I think you can you can quite clearly tell it's a, it's a modern replacement, but it gives you a, a far better idea of how the model would have looked originally. One thing I think that, that Alan and I were astounded by last year when he was refitting this leg is the sheer weight of the model. He, the uh, armature parts are far thicker than ones from later models and the feet, the, the legs of the model are so impressive because 
there are three screws in each foot. So when we talk about Ray's animation, we talk about how long it would take him to, to animate a sequence. And we say, well, this, this sequence took three months, this took four months. You know, that can lose its impact after a while. I think when you look at the animation required for the feet alone, every movement, every step that the Cyclops takes, three screws are unscrewed, three screws are put back down. Every single step that he takes is involved in this this process, this lengthy and time-consuming process of screwing and unscrewing the legs down. And that's just for the walking alone, let alone the, the model's um, expressions and arm movements. So complex animation and very time consuming and then requiring so much concentration and I think it's the, the kind of thing you can only appreciate when you get to see raised models up close. Absolutely it's it's you know to say it was a right kerfuffle is uh, is massively underplaying it it's part of the reason why if you wanted to do photo real creatures there really only was one show in town and it was Ray Harryhausen and although other people like Jim Danforth and Steve Archer did do animations um Really, it was Ray Harryhausen you came to, or you went another route and, and perhaps put a, a man in a suit. Journey to a magical time when demons and heroes battled for the golden treasures and human spoils of forgotten kingdoms. So Kerwin Matthews was the go-to actor, really, wasn't he, for Harryhausen's films because he looked the part, he took direction well, he, he was Gulliver. <laughs> um, and so Ray wanted to return to Kerwin Matthews for other films, but only due to availability. He, he didn't always get him. But he is, for many people, the perfect fit, even though he ha- doesn't have the look that Sinbad had in later films, which was more ethnically um, relevant or correct. Uh, Kerwin Matthews is, is pretty impressive, isn't he, Connor? I think that's right. And I think when uh, when he was given the role, I think Kerwin Matthews perhaps didn't quite know what he was letting himself in for. But Ray always said that he was a natural for this kind of filmmaking because he could really sell the idea of battling with a skeleton or escaping from a cyclops. He was able to see things and uh, portray to the audience that what he was fighting was actually real. Um, his, his eye line, his... Ray would use his famous monster stick technique of um, providing the actors with an eyeline. And I think probably over the years, some of the actors that appeared in Ray's films didn't quite understand what they were what they were doing or maybe quite didn't get the relevance of, of the special effects. But Kerwin Matthews was really able to, to fight with the creatures that weren't there and to interact with the scenery around him. And I think that's why Ray liked working with him so much. So for many fans, he's become... The, the quintessential Sinbad, of course there, there's three to choose from and three, three quite different portrayals of the character, but very interestingly, um, a young actor named Mark Hamill was working alongside Kerwin Matthews in the 1970s. Uh, they, were on a, they were on a soap opera together and this, this young actor uh, was peppering Matthews with questions about the seventh voyage of Sinbad because he was such a huge Ray Harryhausen fan, so asking him all day, what was it like to work with Ray? What was it like to be Sinbad? And eventually, Kerwin Matthews said, listen, uh, let's get our work done today and I'll meet up with you afterwards and you can do an interview with me. So they wrote down an interview together. They recorded an interview which appeared in the Ray Harryhausen fanzine, FXRH. And of course, a few short years later, Mark Hamill went on to become Luke Skywalker, who I think, I think Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill's uh, portrayal of Luke Skywalker in the original Star Wars film, calls back to the slightly more innocent Sinbad of 1958. What do you think, John? 
I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a certain style, isn't there? There's a certain open-faced um, innocence about uh, and and a chastenedness about Sinbad, which was very much would play to audiences at the time. So he's 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 he could easily have been the princess's brother from the way he was behaving around her, and, and not someone who was a suitor trying to get her back to the right size so he could marry her, etc. Um, so you know, the, the the there is definitely a nod to to that that more chastened behaviour. Um, because remember, at this point, she's unmarried, and yet she's locked in a tiny box with him, off on a boat with lots of other sailors, going to an island. I mean, <laughs> even by today's standards, that's a bit questionable. Um, but he plays that really well, so you never think about that when you're watching the film. Um, what I do think about is the fact that Torin Thatcher, who played uh, the villain piece so remarkably well, um, teamed up with the film's director Nathan Duran and Cohen Matthews and went off and done it a rather cheeky Harryhausen ripoff in 1962 with uh, Jack the Giant Killer which when you look at the poster and look at the trailer it feels like it's a Ray Harryhausen film it has similar look and feel etc um it's it's bad you know on these podcasts we don't talk about other people making bad films this is bad <laughs> I mean it's really bad it's you know it's pants proper pants um and you know it's it's worth seeing just to get a sense of how astonishing Ray Harryhausen's achievement was. And they had similar creatures in Jack the Giant Killer, the ape, um, the Harryhausen film. Um, the Seven Voyage of Sinbad was a fabulous success, making millions of dollars around the world. So of course the feeling was, ah, we can do what they did and get those actors and maybe get that director. But if only they got Ray Harryhausen as well, maybe. Uh, uh, Jack the Giant Killer wouldn't have been such a dud. And and it was remade recently. Brian Singer um, had a crack at Jack the Giant Killer. And I don't think it did particularly well second time around. Although I think it's probably a marginally better film with, with Brian Singer in charge. But um, I don't know how, how Ray and, and Charles Schneer would have felt about that. Because, you know, Torin Thatcher had worked, obviously, with them. They never worked with... Cohen Matthews again after that so I wonder if Connor if that was the real reason because they'd done a, a bit of a, a midnight flit and went and worked on a on a pirate film I, I do wonder because there's a definite uh, feeling of uh, trying to to recapture that lightning in a bottle by using all of these similar actors and uh, the same director and copying some of Ray's creatures I'd imagine that Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer weren't too pleased by what transpired. Although it's interesting that uh, they they worked with Nathan Duran, the director again, on First Men in the Moon. So they couldn't have been too cross with him. I think by the time of the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, the idea of using Kerwin Matthews was was floated again, uh, but they felt that he was just a a little too old at that stage. They wanted a, a youthful, vibrant actor, um, which, of course, John Philip Law definitely was. Uh, so probably at the time, I'd imagine that Ray Harryhausen and, and Charles Schneer weren't best pleased by what had transpired with Jack the Giant Killer. But in later years, Ray was always uh, effusive with his praise of Kerwin Matthews and of Torrin Thatcher. Uh, he thought that they both made the perfect hero and the perfect villain for, for Sinbad's adventures. Absolutely. And, you know, as we work our way through the cast, uh, Catherine Crosby... Um, terrific, of course. Uh, the the wife of of famed crooner Bing Crosby, um, which is quite astonishing when you think about it. There's there's a reasonable age gap between them both, but um, she worked really well, I think, as the princess. She she brought the the right kind of energy to it. 
because there's a, a sense of pantomime about some of these stories, you have to really play it straight. You can't play this tongue-in-cheek because the whole edifice around the conceit will fall apart. Um, so I think, you know, great respect to all of the performers for playing it playing it straight, but also playing it well. And, and between them, they, they, they really create that sense of harmony, which sometimes in other films you get a sense of the lack of direction where people aren't as coherent here it feels like a very tight ship, well rehearsed, and everyone everyone played nicely together, which um, which is a very good thing, I think, and that's part of the reason why the film has the charm it has and has the uh, the longevity that it has as well. And uh, I don't think Catherine Crosby is, is is wildly well known for other film roles, but um, I'm sure this is the one that gets most uh, most repeated. Well, I think this picture actually signalled more or less the end of her acting career, if, if I'm not mistaken. She was actually uh, just married to Bing Crosby. She was actually uh, pregnant with his child at the time during filming, so for a few sequences, uh, a stunt double was required to make sure she wasn't straining herself in any way. Um, following the release of Seventh Voyage, she kind of uh, retired from the limelight, so to speak, although she would quite regularly appear in uh, Crosby's famous Christmas specials and so she was well known in, in the public eye, eye line for that but yeah I think this is definitely her, her most famous role by far and one that she's still fondly remembered for to this day. Now the other key female role in the film is the the serpent woman um, who was basically she was the, the she was the handmaiden wasn't she or she was the lady's maid I, I, I suspect we would call her in English society who who is part of uh, Torin Thatcher's little experiment when he has a, a theatrical magical um, show he puts on for um, Sinbad and, and, and the gathered family, and it all goes a little bit wrong, doesn't it? But it's it's a nice nod to other sequences that weren't necessarily male-dominated fight scenes with creatures. Um, this this is quite um, quite a departure for Ray, isn't it? Yes, Sari the Handmaiden and. Is, is put into this large vessel and transformed into an exotic snake woman. For for the sequence, Ray actually studied belly dancers and the, their movement and their dancing to, to recreate an authentic serpentine look. He loved animating snakes. He would have animated more snakes. Charles Schneer was not a fan of um, creatures that were snake-like, and so he uh, would put his foot down whenever Ray had an idea to put, to put snake people or, or, or giant snakes in his films, but this is one opportunity that Ray took to animate, and he loved uh, the animation of the arms. It's so smooth, and it's, as you say, it's not a fight sequence. Of course, uh, the, the tail begins to attack uh, Sari towards the end of the sequence, and the spell's broken. But is it, I think, alongside, again, Bernard Herrmann's music and the look of astonishment of people's faces, it's a very imaginative scene, and it's atypical for stop motion animation it's it's hard to, to think about now but in 1958 no one had seen anything like this King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, all these other creatures and all these other pictures hadn't featured a dance sequence a stop motion dance sequence so it was really again stretching out his repertoire and uh, different techniques that he could employ Absolutely and it recalls you know future films, the, the dance of Carly from Golden Voyage and of course the iconic Medusa in Clash of the Titans, um, the half-woman, half-snake, again returning there in monstrous, definitive form. 
I think the one one other creature or two other creatures are are the giant rock, the the two headed bird. Now in mythology, it's uh, it's a giant bird uh, with one head. But Ray wanted to. I think Ray was always very conscious of making sure that nobody could mistake his creatures for either men in suits or blown up images of of real creatures, such as in the first or, or in the original one million BC, where they use lizards with. Um, dinosaur tails and dinosaur fins attached. Uh, Ray didn't want anybody to think that the rock was just a, a bird that Ray had put on the screen and blown up to, to giant size. So he, he provided both the adult and the baby rock with two heads. And again, it's a, a lovely piece of animation. You can't help but feel sorry for the baby rock being eaten by those sailors. It's one of the, the sequences that we have the original key drawing for. The, the poor little thing is, is torn apart by by Sinbad's crew and uh, they get their just desserts when the mother rock attacks and uh, another impressive sequence. Absolutely and I think finally the the special effects that rarely get talked about but they're kind of essential to these sorts of films are some of the model work so whether it's uh, Sinbad's uh, ship as it crashes against the waves or the genie as he enters and leaves the bottle and of course the princess as she's she's shrunken down and then regrown something that Ray would later capitalise on for uh, Three Worlds of Gulliver. So those sort of more um, practical special effects um, that sometimes happened in camera or a result of the yellow sodium backing process. Um, Less obvious, but of course essential to the role if you're trying to get somebody to disappear in a puff of smoke in the shape of a small boy. So I think all those special effects, Connor, stand up um, remarkably well as well, don't they? Yeah, I think you're right. As you say, um, well, Ray was always happy when you didn't notice the special effects because you're too enraptured in the story. And I think seeing the shrinking woman now, you maybe don't appreciate what a technical achievement that was uh, with it, with the blue screen and the the camera, which Ray would retract back slowly and very steadily to give the illusion of a, of a shrinking arm. All of these things needed to be plotted out meticulously and we still have all of Ray's drawings and plans for for these things um of course there's the the giant crossbow as well uh, another model which uh, which I should mention from the collection which we still have is the crossbow which is used to kill the dragon at the end of the film and we still have this within our archive Ray built the the miniature on set they had one wheel one giant wheel uh and this was used and then the crossbow miniature was inserted uh, during Ray's animation, still in wonderful condition as well, but a model which some people may not realise was a miniature because on the big screen it looks perfect. It looks like it's just part of the action. It's one of those sort of practical effects where you've extended the set or you've you've added extra rooms to the castle, which um, you don't want people to notice, but the fact they haven't makes you slightly crestfallen that they haven't appreciated your work. But the film itself is quite a short running time. It's 88 minutes, so it moves at quite a pace. So, you know, for, for aficionados, you need to kind of really stop that film frame by frame and have a look at some of the, the marvellous effects created, the, the force field effect on the beach. It's really, that is that is splendid. Um, the shimmering effect where the, uh, the Cyclops is trapped uh, behind the shimmering force field. Um, as good as anything you'd see today, I would say, and if, if, not, um, if not better than some of these uh, CGI-laden projects. <laughs> Just one more. I'm just going to go one more little uh, practical effect which people may not have uh, noticed or appreciated is the the fire coming out of the dragon's mouth. 
uh, for that sequence, Ray actually had a flamethrower, which he shot into the night sky in Spain during uh, the live-action filming. He, he shot this flamethrower into the sky. This was filmed, and then in later sequences was superimposed into into the movie itself to to show you that the dragon is um is a fire-breathing monster. Um, the the flamethrower was quite expensive, so this was only done once or twice. But that's another creature that we need to talk about, the dragon. A quintessential dragon. Now, now dragons are everywhere with Game of Thrones and uh, all of these real, very popular fantasy franchises. But back in 1958, it was another puzzle for Ray. How do you portray a dragon on the big screen? Because there's so many mythological dragons from around the world. And uh, Ray designed one which I think appealed to him the most. It's, it's not a flying creature. It's one which is, I think, quite heavily influenced by oriental dragon and mythology um, and another sympathetic creature the, the poor thing dies at the end of the film having just been released from Sakura's imprisonment absolutely and that dragon also breathes if you look closely you can see there's a a miniature bellows was created to put a little um, effectively a little air bladder inside the creature so it would be um it would be as 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 you would when you breathe you as you inhale the chest would expand and then contract again um, something that that you might not notice on first viewing, but it gives that sense of 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 urgency and 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 that sense of sort of blood and guts to the creature. So that sense that it's really alive and that you are in some danger. Um, I think when the princess and Simba walk through and the dragon is chained, you can really notice the bellows of the uh, of the lungs moving up and down. It's quite um, it's quite scary. Yes, and of course the dragon and Cyclops have a climactic battle and it's probably one of the most iconic Ray Harryhausen end of end of film fights between two of a stop motion creature and it's it's a template which would later be used for for finales in, in future Sinbad films. But uh talk about a clash of the titans to to coin the phase. The uh the Cyclops versus the Dragon um is a is a wonderful piece of animation and uh of course, the, the dragon overcomes, but not without a little bit of bloodletting beforehand. Spoilers. Yeah, I'm going to ruin the end of the film, but this is a, <laughs> this is the a, a hopefully have, 60 years on. Everyone's seen it by now. I hope so. If you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Listen to this podcast. No, that, that's been fascinating, Connor. Really, you know, catching up with the film and and the fact that all of Ray's films have lasted. You know, we talk about this at length, of course, on the podcast. That uh, you know they're appreciated by fans and, and are back, but. Um, even outside of the foundation, I mean, there are, there are things happening. You've got some updates for us, haven't you, about uh, about awards, books, and 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 what have you? Yes, it's been a it's been a busy start to 2018. Although we're we're into April now, but we have a lot going on and a lot of events to celebrate these classic film anniversaries. Uh, but first of all, an announcement to make is that we have been awarded the Rondo Award for Best Live Event at the Rondo Awards 2018. And this is for our Mythical Menagerie exhibition in Oklahoma last year. So much work went into this exhibition from, from ourselves and from the staff at the Science Museum Oklahoma. So worthwhile to see race fans across the USA and even Canada travelling to Oklahoma to, to see this exhibition in person, sometimes multiple times. This this makes it so, so worthwhile and hearing the comments, seeing the photographs and actually getting to meet a lot of the fans when, when we flew over to, to do a couple of special presentations. The first exhibition of Ray Harryhausen's models for, for many, many years in the USA. 
I think this award just caps things off nicely and it's a testament to the fans of Ray's work and the ongoing appeal of Ray Harryhausen's incredible imagination. Absolutely, and there's a, there's a podcast dedicated to the Oklahoma Science Museum. If you go back and have a look through, you'll, you'll find that one. Um, and also we've got a, an interesting book, Harryhausen, The Movie Posters by Richard Hollis. Uh, Richard was a guest here on the uh, podcast I think last year, chatting about the books and, and sending out a request to fans and collectors to send through their posters for the book. Um, it's out on the 4th of September. You can pre-order it now if you want a first edition version of the book um, from Amazon and um, also later on from the Titan Books website. So if you're interested in a first edition copy of that, I think it retails at £29.99 and you can order it from anywhere in the world. If you're outside the UK, you can still order it from the Amazon.co.uk website. And uh, it's splendid. The artwork is is all together. It's even got its cover design and there's going to be some events um, later in the year in September we're going to have some screenings and we're going to have some signings with Richard Hollis himself. And we're thrilled that uh, film director John Landis has written the foreword to the book. Uh, those who regularly listen to our podcast will know that John was a great friend of Ray's and the family and has always helped us here at the Foundation. And we've bumped into him at different screenings and he's always been a great supporter. So we're thrilled that uh, John Landis has written the, the foreword for the book. And you yourself, Connor, have had to bring your your um, museum smarts to the fore because you've helped find a lot of the posters and helped collate things for uh, Richard Hollis, haven't you? That's right. Richard and I have been in dialogue about the films from the collection that he required. Ray obviously kept many hundreds of posters from his films, some quite well known, others extremely obscure. And so there was a process of passing this information to Richard, working out which posters he required and then having them photographed in high definition so it was uh, another great friend of the foundation Andy Johnson he photographed many of these rare images and these will be seen in Richard's book for the first time for many of these images but of course the fans around the world who got in contact last year with their own private poster archives have provided a, an immense amount of material for this book and each of those will be thanked individually um, and it's, I think it's a real testament. When you look through the book, it's striking how different poster artwork was around the world and at different times. It's going to be a fascinating read. We've been privileged to, to see the final touches being added by Richard recently. And uh, yes, definitely, I recommend getting pre-ordering this on Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com and something very much to look forward to for September. Absolutely, and we hope to have Richard here on the podcast chatting to us about the making of the book because um, there are a few surprises in store and we won't reveal what they are right now. But Sam, you've got an update, um, Connor, about the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Well, yes, um, similar to previous years, we are delighted to have arranged a screening of one of Ray Harryhausen's anniversary pictures. So in 2016, there was an outdoor screening of One Million Years BC at St Andrew's Square in Edinburgh. Had a screening of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger in glorious Scottish sunshine. And once more this year there will be a screening of Jason and the Argonauts. So fingers crossed for a lovely summer because there's going to be an outdoor screening of probably Ray's most beloved film, Jason and the Argonauts, as part of the Edinburgh Film Festival's Film Fest in the City. On the topic of outdoor screenings, and this is this is hot off the press, this is brand new news that 
uh, even John doesn't know about. Uh, Valance House, who are hosting the Dinosaurs, Harryhausen and Me exhibition, have decided to top off their exhibition, which coincidentally ends on the 30th of June, which is the day after Ray's birthday, they're going to host a screening of the film we've been talking about today, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. And that, again, is going to be an outdoor screening. So, as I say, fingers crossed for a nice warm summer across the UK because you're going to get that chance to see some of Ray's most beloved pictures on the big screen, restored in 2K or in 4K, uh, with stereo sound, looking magnificent. And if you go to the Valance House screening, of course you'll be able to see some of the models we've been speaking about afterwards. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just so that everyone realises we're not just fanboys here, the uh, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was selected in 2008 for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. So it's not just us here, the fanboys, who want everyone to, uh, you know, to touch the garment or touch the hem of Ray Harryhausen. It, it's, it's been, you know, widely recognised as being a important part of film history no i think that's right and i think if you look at uh, if you look at the first star wars film and you look at uh, later special effects pictures the influence of the seventh voyage in particular can be felt to this day uh, i think bernard herman summed it up perfectly it's got a an atmosphere of uh, mystical innocence and i think that's why it remains such a, a timeless and beloved film and as I said before, such a lightning-struck, big-bang moment for special effects cinema, one that's still being felt to this day. Absolutely, and as always, we try and give the last word here to Ray Harryhausen, and here's Ray discussing the dilemma of audiences confusing animation with live-action stop-motion. And uh, all it remains for me to say is thank you for for tuning in, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again in episode 20 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. So for myself and Connor, it's uh, goodbye. Goodbye. The enchanted, breathtaking adventure that could never be told before. The seventh voyage of Sinbad. Critics started saying that it was animated, the creatures were animated. The average person hears the word animation, they immediately think of a cartoon. So we found that many people stayed, particularly adults, stayed away because they thought it was for children. So we tried to devise a new name called Dynamation from Dynamic Animation. Copyrights in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2018. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links. Interview clips in this episode have been taken from the 2011 documentary Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan, produced by Frenetic Arts and the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. This documentary is available on DVD and Blu-ray through Arrow Films. (laughs) 